1: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool episode for you today because we are going to be cross-promoting The Conduit music podcast that we produce, you know, you may not know, but if you don't know, you're about to know that Crew West Studio, my company that produces this podcast and not Real Art Podcast, also produces the Conduit music podcast with Dan Ubik. Dan Ubik is an incredible musician, producer, engineer, multi-instrumentalist, friend of the show, you know, just awesome human, great artist here in L.A., real music impresario. And he is the host of a podcast that we produce called The Conduit. And he sits down with incredible independent musicians, artists, singers, DJs, producers, bands, you know, Fits in the Tantrums, Ozo Motley, you know, DJ Z Trip, on and on and on and on. And so, by all means, go to the com and check out the show, check out all the great stuff that's there for you. Dan does an incredible job of talking to these artists and learning from them and getting their stories. And so what we want to do each month, we're going to start cross-promoting some of the podcasts that we produce. We produce Artsville USA, which is celebrating American Contemporary Arts and Crafts. We'll be dropping some of those episodes, we produce a comedy podcast called Laugh Gallery, where we sit down with comics and hear from them and enjoy some of their comedy and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we're going to be dropping Laugh Gallery. you are be able to hear, uh, you know, that uh, show as well. And so today, though, we're going to shine a light on The Conduit and we're going to celebrate and, and honor the great work that Dan's been doing on The Conduit and sitting down with these incredible artists And hearing from them. And today's guest is DJ Z Trip. Dan Ubik is going to sit down and interview Z Trip for today's episode of the Conduit. I think you're gonna love it. And you know, Z Trip is often referred to as a young Rick Rubin. His roots are based in hip hop, but he covers and loves all music styles, considered by many as the godfather of mashups. His style of mixing and producing reaches way beyond that. Z Trip received the award for America's Best DJ and still remains on the top 10 list year after year. He's collaborated with some of the very best to ever do it. Nas, Public Enemy, DJ Shadow, Rakim, Shepard Fairey, Talib Kweli, and many, many others. I could go on and on. He's on tour right now with LL Cool J. He was just on, I think, the New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square for the 2024 New Year's. So Z Trip is a fantastic, you know, incredible artist, but also a friend of the show. Uh, we've worked together on various gigs in years past, but we just love Z Trip and his art. And so Dan is going to sit down and talk to Z today on the episode of The Conduit. So we're going to get into this and, you know, you're going to hear the intro, you're going to hear Dan's setup, you're, and then you're going to get into this conversation between Dan and Z. So I think you're going to love this. Please be sure to go to the conduit Subscribe to the podcast. Enjoy the great content that's there for you. Learn from these other artists. We have to learn from each other. And whether you're a visual artist or a performing artist or a musician, I think we can all learn from each other. We all get inspired from each other and listening to each other. We have to help each other and and tell our stories and, and learn from one another. So without further ado, let's get into this conduit episode with Dan Ubik and the one and only DJ Z-Trip.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lions Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, S Studios and Dan Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today our guest is Ztrip, DJ for LL Cool J, the godfather of the mashup and go-to remix producer. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. The program is about to begin. Hey everybody, I'm Dan Ubik. Welcome to episode seven of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today my guest is globe-trotting DJ and producer Z-Trip, recipient of America's Best DJ Award. Zach has been called the godfather of mashups and has collaborated with everyone from Nas, L.O. Cool J, Public Enemy, Rakim, and Talib Kweli to folks like Bass Nectar, Chester Bennington, R.I.P., Shepard Fairey, and DJ Shadow. His love for all styles of music and how they can work together is groundbreaking and inspiring and his innate funkiness and technical ability has led to composing score for video games like EA's Skate and Madden games, mashups for Activision's DJ Hero, and scoring music for films such as Infamy, La Barre, Scratch All The Way Live, and Bob Marley, Legend Remixed. In addition, Zach has done remixes for everyone from Nirvana, The Beastie Boys, Dead Weather, and The Jackson Five. Zach's work ethic is to be admired, as is his love of music, approachable demeanor, and positive attitude. So sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with my brother and ace DJ, Z-Trip. Zach, Z-Trip, welcome to The Conduit, man. Thanks so much for being here.
2: I'm stoked to be here, man. How are you, Dan?
0: Oh, I'm good, man. I'm good. Excited to dig in and share all your history and how you got to where you are with all of our listeners, man. So appreciate you being here, dude. Stoked to be here. So you grew up in Queens in New York and then moved out to Phoenix, Arizona as a teenager. Did either city have a big effect on what music was inspiring you as a kid?
2: They both did, actually, for very polar opposite reasons. Yeah. You know, obviously picking up everything that was happening with hip hop in New York. I mean, that was like, you know, early 80s, 84, 85, 86, where I was buying hip hop records in New York, yeah, regional records, things that, you know, you couldn't really find anywhere else and bringing them back to Arizona. So to preface that, I moved out from... Queens originally as a kid, my parents got a divorce. My dad moved back to New York. So then I was back and forth. So there was this thing of like, I'd go to New York, get all this music, get all this culture, go back to Arizona. And we lived 20 miles outside of the city line of Phoenix. So it's rural, you know, closest neighbor was a mile away, dirt roads, like real. Went from having the Long Island Railroad in my backyard in New York to (laughs) <laughs> cattle and like saguaro <laughs> cactuses and shit. So yeah. I'm bringing this hip hop to there and right. exposing all my friends and all these people who didn't know what any of this music was to this stuff that was like bleeding edge, happening. Like here's I just got this EPMD 12 inch that came out you know a week ago, <laughs> right. that kind of shit thing. So basically having two worlds that I was living in: this real rural sort of country, very rock heavy. Very yeah. didn't really have any sort of urban flavor at all. It was kind of the that I think that's why I had a good balance of like I knew all the rock shit. My brother was also into rock and and he yeah. was into you know uh, Kiss and ACDC and Deep Purple, and Black Sabbath, and Pink Floyd and Zeppelin, and on and on and on. So here I was bringing Curtis Blow and Nucleus and yeah, there you go. I know that <laughs> record well. Um, But, you know, bringing in, you know, Run DMC and UTFO and LL Cool J and, you know, all this this stuff into that and me being a drummer and being based around drums and beats, all of that to me made sense. So when I heard this really rhythmic, you know, heavy music, I was just immediately drawn to it. But that was what I was trying to sort of show to all my friends who were like big, you know, John Bonham fans and loved Led Zeppelin. I was like, if you like this, you're going to love this. And right. some got it, some didn't, some got it way later. <laughs> some still <laughs> don't
0: get it, <laughs> right. you know? Right. So, But yeah. That's crazy. I read too that your mom played guitar and sang and played keys and stuff. What did she think of hip hop? Did she like it? Did she like rap she music? She
2: dug the rhythm, you know, she understood, I think, the core of what drew me to it. But I don't think she ever really tapped into what, you know, any of the social or any of the, you know, the wordplay or any of that stuff. I I think it was just on the surface. She's like, oh yeah, beats. He likes to dance. He likes drums. And so she understood sort of the, you know, the baseline of what it was, but she encouraged it. I mean, she, you know, but also, you know, it wasn't like I just listened to hip hop. I listened to everything and yeah, it just happened to be that hip hop was the thing that I was the most drawn to because it was the newest thing and was developing before my eyes where I had all this catalog to look at with Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and everything I I had years to study up and even going back and and diversifying too like you know as much as there was Led Zeppelin there was also Parliament and James Brown and the B-52s and like it, it was and the Beatles and Joan Baez and just I mean it was so much music and different textures to understand and my mom playing guitar and and singing, and my sister sang a little bit, and my mom played keys. So there yeah. was always, we grew up very hippie community, yeah. you know what I mean? So there's a lot of potlucks at the house, a lot of hippies hanging around, a lot of sing-alongs, a lot of, you know, interesting yeah. smells when I was a kid <laughs> walking around, you yeah. know. So, but it was, uh, I think all that lent to my ability to absorb and just see like different styles and cultures and ethnicities and food and music and I was glad that I was experiencing all that, but it was also really difficult because in Arizona at the time, there weren't a lot of those people around. You know what I mean? Right. So it was a little tough to, I think our family was trying to find other like minded people. So, you know, took a little sure. finding, but we found them.
0: She's right, man. You always do. We find our tribe, man.
2: Yeah, true.
0: Dang. Well, so you're buying all these records and bringing them home and playing them for people in Arizona. What kind of clicked with you as far as like seeing the DJ behind all these MCs and knowing that you could put these records that you've been buying to work? Well,
2: the DJ part
0: came, you know, later, but not much
2: later. I was exposed to this stuff and I was like, this is incredible. But I think, so the whole thing of me becoming a DJ, the whole sort of premise of that was that i was buying these 12 inch records because i would hear this music and i would hear snippets of it because people were mixing and yeah. i'd be like that what was that and they only played yeah. it for like a minute and i would like i want more of that where can i find yeah. it so i would then go find the the single or the album and maybe it only had the album only had the album track but then i'd go look into the 12 inch single area and i would find that they had the 12 inch with an extended version, a dub version, remix version. So I was like, what? There's five versions of my favorite song? I need <laughs> right. to buy this. Like this is, right. like the album is whatever. This is what I came here for. So I started collecting these buying 12-inch versions, extended versions. You know, you would kind of keep them separate. You, you know, you had your albums and the albums were what they were, but my 12-inch collection started growing and growing and growing. And after a while, you know, half a crate turned into three crates turned into five crates of these 12 inch singles that I had. And, you know, then friends were like, Hey, you should come over and bring your record collection, play your records at our party. And, you know, I was just trying to put together a yeah. and stuff. and it wasn't really like I set out to become a DJ. I really just, it was very much about me having this music and wanting to share it. And so once I realized that I could yeah. put it together and I could exposed people to the things that i liked the dj thing came into play and then i started right. studying how other djs did it and i think one of my first people that i really really studied was marley mall and red alert actually at the same time because they both had competing mix shows on in new york at the same time marley mall on yeah. less WBLS, wbls and red alert on kiss fm and they both yeah. came on at the same time from nine to midnight so you'd have to have two cassette players recording each show so you <laughs> right. could listen to both the following day or the following, you know, couple of days because they would do it on the weekends. So you'd wait for the weekends, you'd record the shows and then all week you'd listen to pick up stuff and and then you'd run to the record store and be like, "Hey, do you have this?" you know. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of how it, it happened. Like it literally was just from me collecting records and wanting to share those records with other people that I realized I need to string these records together in a way that I'm hearing other DJs and people do that, and in doing that, I also started to figure out how to infuse things that I that they weren't playing and put them in. Yeah. Like you know, let me see if I can put a Led Zeppelin in. Let me see if I can put a Pink Floyd in. Let me see you know because I love some of these songs too. They're funky or they're or the heavy and the intensity was kind of what I was trying to match. And I didn't really see a, a difference between the two. I mean, sonically, clearly there is, and stylistically. Yeah. But energy-wise, you know, the Immigrant song is just as heavy as Jam On It to me. It has the same intensity or Bring the Noise has the same intensity. So that, you know, trying to find the similar songs. And then along comes Rick Rubin and sort of proves my feeling you know, in context and yeah. yeah, so that was it. But you know, I grown up in,
0: and all those early songs yeah. with some heavy guitar and sample and then Roy Aerosmith and all that. Yeah,
2: growing up and you know, I listened to both and I hung out with both crowds and I didn't really I understood there was a difference, but I didn't give a fuck. <laughs> it was like yeah, I want to know both of these worlds and both of these worlds have incredible culture and people and stories. And the fact that they don't speak to each other is really weird to me. So yeah. because both of them spoke to me, but I realized that both yeah. of them didn't speak to everybody else. So I was like, I, I gotta <laughs> right. I gotta get people on board because that's that's really the whole deal.
0: That's it. That's like junior high for me in Los Angeles is like everybody coming together with busing, you know, and you're getting all these different cultures and musics. And that was the beautiful thing about it, like, you know, you're finding out about EPMD and Run DMC and Slayer and, and Iron and Maiden. Metallica yeah. Yeah.
2: Whatever. Yeah. It's whatever like,
0: whatever it is, you know, that, it was, the, it and was it a is, great time. Energy and sharing energy is like the most important thing. You know, if you can, if you can get that energy onto vinyl or onto whatever format it is now, you know, and yeah. share that energy, that's what's infectious.
2: Yeah. And when people did it right, it was like, a win for the cause, you know what I mean? I felt so, you know, when you hear on Ryman and steel and you hear when the levy breaks drum break and you're like, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And then, you know, later on walk this way or, you know, even sampling Slayer for, you know, on a public enemy song, I was Channel like,
0: Zero, yeah.
2: you know, what one of my favorites is and for many reasons is rock the bells rock the bells to me was it's sort of a case study if you will on using something that felt right for the song but also using something you know we get locked into sampling of like i gotta go find something old and dirty Mm -hmm. and something from the 60s or 70s at the time that rock the bells was made the guitar stab the which is the heartbeat of that song yeah is a guitar from a c d c and from this album Flick of the Switch, and that album had just come out, so right right the idea that they're working on the song, and Rick Rubin goes over to his record that he just probably got, and I was like, well, I need yeah. something heavy. Let me grab this Angus young rat, puts it on the thing, and it becomes what it becomes is the epitome of sort of punk rock, no rules just do what feels right. And that to me is, I subscribe to that as much as I subscribe to sampling James Brown records and everything else. I thought that was, you know, Eric B and Rakim, you know, I know you got soul and, you know, on and on and Marley and all these people who are just incredible, you know, producers, Paul C, whatever that were sampling these, you know, doing this great work. I still love the fact that as much as that was becoming a sound and a thing, here's this thing that is just like, I'm take that. That came out yesterday. Fuck it. It works. I'm taking it.
0: Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: That to me was the yeah. thing that spoke to me that there are no rules. And when, you know, when you're thinking about the people who kind of laid the groundwork, you know, the Kool Hercs and Bambadas and Jazzy Jays of the world and Flash you know, these guys who were taking craft work, for example. That's a German yeah. electronic group that really had nothing to do with hip-hop, really, but because yeah. Bambata took it and put it into the mix and put it in the juxtaposition of a couple things. All of a sudden, these kids who would not have known about that are hearing it going, What is that? Now, all of a sudden, yeah. it becomes an anthem. And you've got this German, you know, electronic act, very alternative, yeah. very avant garde, is now a staple in the hip hop diet, like in the diagram. You know what I mean? It's like craft work. Totally. So I loved that. And I still, I think that blueprint was embedded in my DNA at an early age. And when trends started happening, I started becoming less excited about whatever the trend was and more wanting to go down the path of like, let's keep pushing these boundaries and seeing producers like Timberland and all these guys doing sampling middle eastern records and and like just let's keep pushing this because it doesn't always have to be the same thing you know what i mean and um Mm -hmm. people get really caught up in what sells or what's hot and i feel like that's great you can chase the money but like creatively make something that's going to stand the test of time and that's kind of what i felt like um
0: yeah, those a, boundary a, a pushing to me. the ones that catch your ear too. Yeah. Like Nas yeah. and Damien with the Mulatu sample. Like that mm-hmm. was like, fuck, that was like the best single that year. It was incredible. Right,
2: right. I love that stuff. I love when people push boundaries. And to me, that's the thing that's always attracted me to hip hop is that there was a sense of sampling and discovery. And, you know, I always call it like the prism. Like, you know, there was a time where hip hop, anything that came into hip hop, could be diffused and the rainbow shoots out right it's like anything but it wouldn't work the other way around you know Mm -hmm. what I mean it's like trying to get like very hard to get a a rock or a country or jazz or anything to do hip-hop because it wasn't it just it was like them trying to do like that's why you saw the commercials like the Flintstones rapping or whatever the fuck you know bullshit like everybody trying (laughs) to hip-hop because that was hot and they were trying to co-opt that into you know, the culture, but like, it only kind of worked one way for a very long time. And I'm kind of grateful for that because it honed it and it made it a very specific thing that if you wanted to obtain that, you had to kind of go to the culture. You couldn't just, you know, bite off of it. And then eventually people kind of figured out how to do that with all the nonsense that happened after that. But there was a time where it was like, you know, it was a very much a one-way street and I was fully down that street.
0: Yeah, man. That was the thing that drew me in too. Was just like, I mean, De La, of course, their first record, like sampling "How High Is the Water," Mama from Johnny Cash, and then like bringing in some reggae, like reggae uh, samples and some funk samples. It was like, dang, every kind of music I like is in this, is on this record, you know? Yeah, sampled yeah. or was a nod to it from there. You know,
2: it's funny, man. To me, like all Incredible. the early, all the early hip hoppers that I had met were. Just freaks, yeah. we were all just you know freaks that were just kind of outcasts from the norm, and you know people walking around with you know feathers in their hair or hair all disheveled or you know like looking slick, looking <laughs> fine, or looking like you just you know came out of the dumps, man, It's like it didn't fucking matter, like we were all white, black, Asian didn't fucking matter, yeah. you know Puerto Rican. I noticed that mostly with graffiti writers, so before I even got into any of the music really. I was messing around with graffiti and there was, you know, you'd have these crews of people that would hang out and the thing that bonded them was the art and you'd look at them and they'd all be of different size, shape, girl, guy, ethnicity, rich, poor. It didn't, you know, if you had skills, you had skills and that's what we judged you on. was like, sure. That person's the dopest person, you know? So I loved that, you know, it was the epitome of you couldn't judge a book by its cover and you know, sometimes the, you know, especially you'd see it in like B-boy events or, you know, see some B-boy or some B-girl come out and they they just look like they just got <laughs> off the bus somewhere. You know, who knows? And like all of a sudden and they just you shock. Yo, they just burn the whole fucking place down. You're like, yep. yep. Don't fucking, you know what I mean? I'll just cuz you just cuz you, yeah, you, know, you look just cuz you got the look doesn't mean you got the flavor inside man sometimes <laughs> the people who don't even that. look at are the most fierce so i love that shit i've always been a fan and i feel like hip hop for me in the early days really taught me that you know there was none of that there you know it was just skills over everything you know what i mean so
0: yeah. that's it man judge a person by the content of their character and what they can do not everything yeah. else.
2: Yeah, their well, knowledge of so, music.
0: <laughs> all this, yeah, exactly right. So all this stuff is inspiring you, and I want to lead us into you starting to produce and record your own stuff, just because this podcast is all about kind of giving people the tools and the knowledge from people who have lived it and done it. How do we get into these places where we can make a living at music? So you're listening to Marley and Red Alert, and you're hearing all these great productions. You're loving all kinds of music from all kinds of genres that you're loving. What gets you into wanting to produce your own stuff? And what are your first steps into producing your own stuff?
2: The very first steps were me making pause mixtapes. You know what I mean? Like, that's real (laughs) rudimentary, but like, It was the ability of, I want to be able to create my own version of this. So Mm -hmm. how do I extend this? Like, this is my favorite part of the song. I want more of this. So that became pause mixtapes and trying to extend it. Then once I actually got a sampler, actually turntables, then it was like, I could do it manually. But if I wanted to loop something, it was like, I need a machine that can do this. So. Mm-hmm. My first sampler was a EPS 16 plus the and Sonic, And once I got that, I was off and running because I could then start putting together collages of things. It's like, I've always want to put this beat with this guitar or this vocal thing. And so I started doing that. And the next thing was a four track. So to right. be able to record, you know, let me lay the drums down or the loop down. Let me lay the vocal down. And so that became a, a way to do it. And eventually over the years, fast forward to pro tools, And having, you know, my first really raw digital, you know, audio workstation, I was able to start moving things around, you know what I mean? And the editing became one of my favorite things because then as a DJ, I could start making my own edits of things and making my own versions of things. And fast forward to now, that's commonplace. You could do all that shit on your phone, you know what I mean? There's there's a million different ways to do it. Very cost effective. We used to have to go to you know recording studios to do that. Like I always wanted to scratch my name. That was always like a goal. I want to be able to scratch my name. So yeah. the first time I was able to do that was taking an acetate, you know, cutting a lacquer yep. eight times on one side, and then testing the first two to get the flavor right, and then recording the next passes until you'd burn all of them, and hopefully you got uh, you know the good take, but it was very raw to do that, you know? And then there was a time too where, you know, if you really had budget, you could press your own records, but then you had to send away and they could get the thing back. So things that we can do now in 30 seconds would take us weeks, months. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the thing is, it's all about trying to push the boundaries and trying to figure out how to evolve and sound different. And so, you know, I would apply all those things on mixtapes. I started making, Mixtapes. I got my first time on Wax was on a series called Return of the DJ that Bomb Records had put out, which is a magazine out of the Bay Area by David mm. Paul, the black and white graffiti hip hop magazine. And he was like, I'm gonna do a album of all DJ cuts. Cause you know, back in the day everybody had a DJ cut, one song yeah. on the album where the DJ could get loose. He's like, I'm gonna do a whole album of that and call a return of the dj so he had hit me up about doing that i did it and then he did volume two volume three and i kept doing things and on one of those i did a song called Rockstar. and the whole point for me was to try and do a mix that was all rock based because i was like all i started realizing everyone's doing these hip-hop dj cuts which is great but like they're all the same flavor so it was like you know Vanilla, vanilla with almonds, mm-hmm. vanilla with chips, you know, Madagascar vanilla, you know, vanilla light, vanilla with almond. It was like, okay, how do I throw, you know, pistachio in this motherfucker? Just, you know, I mean, how can I just change it up? Yeah. So I did a thing called Rockstar and that caught the ear of a whole bunch of people. And it was all rock based stuff with hip hop in it, but it was sort of my version of that. And then you know sort of simultaneously as that was happening i was doing these mixes and being asked to do shows and started traveling a bit and every time i would do a show i'd always try and fuse in some rock or some just bugged out shit into my mix because i found that there were other people who were in the party who would be like i'd play for three or four hours and i might play a van halen song or something in a hip-hop yep. thing it's like what but the way i did it was clever enough where people would yep. come up to me afterwards and be like yo That mix was incredible. That Van Halen thing you did, (laughs) I was like, I just played for four hours, and that's the thing that stuck out. So I started working on a mix and bumped into another DJ randomly at a rave named DJ P and asked him to do some – He was kind of doing some of the same flavor as as I was. I was like, yo, we should do a mix together. Collaborated, put out this thing called Uneasy Listening, and that was all – you know, we called it blending. We were just blending acapellas and the weirdest juxtapositions and it ended up becoming the mashup thing, but we put that out and it cracked open all the doors. And then that, you know, I ended up getting signed off of that and put out my first album and really got serious about producing, you know, the whole time I was trying to produce and make hip hop tracks or just tracks in general, but the DJ stuff was taking off. So these worlds, I was splitting these two worlds and It's just been kind of interesting because it's always been like that. Like the two worlds, they live together, but they're also completely different right, left brain approaches. But the fact that I've been able to straddle both and do both, I've been very lucky because they've opened up opportunities in both worlds.
0: Yeah, man. Well, I love what you said about, you know, you were hearing how you wanted to blend things together. And I think whether you're, you know, producing, playing guitar and instruments or you're using samples and turntables, either way the creative brain is like hearing things you know like a record and they're like I like the drums on that but I didn't really like the chords that they did or I like the vocals on that but I think the drums could be better like trusting your inner instinct to like mash those things together is like, it paid off for you, obviously, you became kind of known for that. But I mean, in general, like Led Zeppelin taking like old blues songs and amping it up with a heavy drummer, you know, it's like, all of these things where you're mashing things together, create something new and unique. And I think that's a great thing to follow in general.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was, like I said, that was the blueprint. I was hearing these DJs do that. And was so inspired by it i was like yo this is i get it you can take anything but it has to go through this filter in order to make it better or evolve it not better because better you know some of these things are great as they are but having the ability to add to you know what i mean and continue or expose people to something like you know how many times have i heard somebody do something and was like what the hell is that sample then i go back and i'm like Oh, that's what Bob James Nautilus. What the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Or whatever. And you just end up sort of like going down these roads. So to me, it's always been about incorporating as much as you can or being open to the idea of and never, you know, never turning something down just based on like, "Ah, that's not going to work. It's like, no, sometimes that's exactly what will work. And so, (laughs) right. And, you know, you'll go through eight different attempts at things and be like i'm so over this and then you'll throw something in and be like that's it and you, yes. you know for me i think there's an internal threshold there's like a filter like that i just know if it hits me i feel like other people are gonna dig it because you know over the years it's like a blessing and a curse i think like i have a hard sort of a threshold to hit in order for me to be stoked on something and because there's just Mm -hmm. so much out there and I only really want to play or listen to or make music that I feel hits a certain thing. Like just to go and do like, sometimes I'll get, you know, offered to do projects and I'll start, you know, in on them. And I'm like this, my heart's just not in this. And there's just nothing, I can't really do anything with this. And I've done a few of those in the past, but at some point I realized I could make money doing that. But it doesn't fulfill the soul. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna pass on that. I think I'm gonna just gonna do what yeah. I I wanna do. The
0: inspiration so. has to be there. Has to. Like, yeah. you know, you can put out
2: oh, work, yeah. but is well, it your best work, right?
0: Yeah, right. Well, so uneasy listening volume one is doing well. You're getting all these great reviews, things are happening, gigs are happening. How did you kind of line up? I mean, this is the first time where you're as far as I know, getting gigs to travel and all this stuff how did you line up all that stuff as someone new to it as far as getting an attorney to look over contracts for you getting a manager to help you book stuff all these things how did that all work out for well, someone um, now for the first time maybe
2: yeah no it's I was just sort of doing the work and just going 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 doing a lot of it myself you know booking yeah. all the flights traveling figuring out you know didn't really know much about anything it was just sort of Fake it till you make it a little bit, trying to figure out how to right. how to evolve it. Yeah. I ended up speaking to a friend of mine who was working at London full frequency recordings, uh, this girl Allison Pember, who also was in charge of a a magazine up in Seattle and the Portland area. You know, she was working DJ Shadows, you know, stuff and like was really entrenched in that. But her and I were speaking a little bit, and she's like, I have a friend who was working at Warner Brothers, and I want you two to meet because I think you two could work well together. And I was kind of looking for somebody to help me navigate. And I met Lori Bula, who we hit it off and had a great run. She was my manager for 13 years. And yeah, but it was also sort of uncharted territory a little bit for her because she was coming out of a job at Warner Brothers where she didn't want to be doing that anymore. She wanted to be managing. So we were kind of figuring it out together as we were going. And gotcha. You know, that I think. It was great for us because we got to learn a lot of things together and some of the negatives, some of the positives. But, you know, I think mm. for anyone who's coming up, you know, finding somebody who's in your trajectory is crucial, I would say, more so than finding somebody who's already established. I love the fact that she hadn't really done this much, you know, before. Mm. I love that she was a woman. I loved that she had a lot of stuff stacked against her just like I did. Yeah. And I felt like if anyone's going to want this as much as I do, it's someone who fits this sort of mold. And so we, you know, very grateful for the times that we worked together because we conquered a lot. We were hitting uncharted territory together. And also, like the DJing thing, you know, was also happening and being sort of in the right place at the right time with that led to more opportunities. And I think. You know, for anybody who's really sort of trying to figure out how to get into it, you know, getting down with the right team, I think is crucial and learning and being open to failing, being pushed out of comfort zones. Lori was really good about that. She had pushed me completely out of my comfort zone many times. And while in the middle of it, I was probably protesting and like fighting it. You know what I mean? But I was like, I'll do it. It ended up being the best shit ever for me you know there's something about having a partner in crime that is willing to get you out of your comfort zone because if it's just you I mean I think it's probably the one thing I learned through the whole arc of my whole career is take chances be risky try to push boundaries don't always play it safe you know what I mean and there's a time to play it safe. There's a time to lock in. And, you know, sometimes you get a gig where it's like, oh, this is a money gig. This is going to pay for all the other opportunities for me to do, you know, to push my art. So I may have to lock into this thing, but learning the balance of that. But I, I feel like if you just stay with one thing and that's all you do, you run the risk of not being able to really grow um, yeah. as fast as you would if you didn't take chances. And... You got to also know that you sometimes those chances do not pay off. <laughs> they bloody, do not, pay and you fall flat on your fucking face. And that's <laughs> you know the art of getting up and dusting yourself off and being like, "Okay, all limbs are yeah. here. I'm still alive." Like, <laughs> yeah, get up and keep moving. You can't let it get you. Lesson learned. You got. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no golden ticket, and there's no you know you have to go through all sorts of pitfalls. But yeah, getting the right team together, you know, she had helped me get a lot of the right people in place. And that helped propel me to where I needed to be, you know, coupled with also my work ethic was I'm here now. It's kind of like you get to a point where you're like, I'm here now. I got to really do the work. There's a line that I saw one day thumbing through VH1, the TV show back when they were VH1, the TV show, (laughs) the network, and they were playing music related shows a lot. They'd have these bumpers of, you know, whatever, so-and-so speaks on whatever. And I remember yeah. they had Ace Freely from Kiss on there for a second. It was some interview where they were asking him about making it. And they were like, hey, what does it take to make it? And he's like, oh, well, first you got to get it was so good at your instrument to the point where you eat, sleep, live with the instrument, learn it, learn it, learn it, get better than everybody else that you possibly know. You know, yeah. you have to turn away girls, fun, partying because you are dedicated to learning your craft and then once you get really, really good, the best you could possibly be, then <laughs> you have to compete with all the other people who have done the same thing and I was like yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of right because you got to get really good and then you get into the pool with the rest of the yeah. people who are that good or better than you and then you have to figure right. out how to go to the top of that so there's that level yeah, of no. like, you know I always would joke around with like, you know, friends of mine, a lot of MCs back in the day would be like, you know, yo, when I get signed, dude, I'm going to fucking blah, 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 blah. Yo, when I get signed, I'm going to, and it's like the idea that that's the goal is like, when I get signed, I've made it. Yeah, It's like, no, when you get signed, that's when you get to work again. That's right. Right. So I feel like there's always a level of showing improving every day. Even to this day, showing you know and what I mean? moving
0: constantly, man. Constantly. You That's have it. to
2: constantly, like every day, you know, every time you step up there and do whatever you're doing, every time you get in front of a camera, or anytime you get in front of, you know, a crowd, it's the first show. Every right? time. And I think there's a level of not getting so caught up in the accolades and/or it's kind of interesting. Perspective really came to me a little bit later. It was happening as I was evolving, but I would have to say like the biggest lessons and the biggest amount of wisdom that I got from my career and things that I could add to bring to the table wisdom wise came through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I was 33 years of shows, 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 produce this, whatever, be there stuff. I constantly, you know, whether it was my stuff or over the last 11, 12 years, teaming up with LL and my stuff, there's yeah. these things of like, it was just go, 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 go balls of the wall, nonstop. And I never took a break. So yeah. when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I was home for more than three weeks and I was like, yo, I'm sleeping in my bed for a month, two months, three months. <laughs> like, right. What the fuck is this? What like, yeah. this is the best hotel I've ever stayed at. This is the coolest hotel. <laughs> all you my know? favorite records do they whoever figured it they, they know me
0: <laughs>
2: so um when I finally had a minute to be with myself and with my thoughts and process everything I kind of had a minute to yeah. stop and look back and look at the war path that I had created and for better or for worse mm-hmm. assess everything and kind of put things into place and You know, some things very proud of, some things not proud at all. Some things, you know, oh man, that's right. I was doing that. And then I got sidetracked and I got completely pulled away from that. I got to get back to that. I got to reconnect with the why I'm doing this. Not the how, but the why. And it really took the hand of God sitting you down and going, okay, I need you to reflect and I need you to think on what you've done and where you want to go. And to be honest, had I not had that break, I probably would have kept going on the path I was on, which wasn't a bad path, mind you. I just, sometimes you get so caught up in the motions of going through the, the running and the, yeah. I've got to get to this, that gig, this thing. Oh, I promised that, the schedule, the thing, that you just get into the dance of it and you forget yeah. the, why am I dancing this way? Why am I even here? What is the whole point of all this? And it was a very sobering moment for me very scary moment too, like to also realize like oh shit like maybe it's done maybe we're done maybe this is where it stops that was a fucking great run man you had a great run be grateful shut up and just you know count your fucking winnings and go sit in the corner and process (laughs) and so there's a lot of that you know it's like should i hang it up but i through that while most people were taking a break i had a little window maybe three four months of a window where i was like I figured it all out. I assessed and put things in the places that they need to be. And then I sat there. I was like, what's missing. What's missing now is I feel like after doing something for 33 years, like the shoemaker, right. I was like, I make shoes. That's what I fucking do. (laughs) Right. You know, all of a sudden I'm not making shoes. I need people to have shoes. It's connection I have. So I was like, I need to be able to make people feel good, especially in these weird times. So I started streaming and the streaming thing, turned into a whole other world and i was doing it once a week i'm not just like playing some records and standing around drinking coffee i was putting together like festival level sets yeah and dumping all my energy into it because i was seeing that other people were out there needing to receive and needing something everyone was sort of like floating so i realized that my playing music for people was giving people a lifeline and that gave me a lifeline and, and also reinforced the why and in a major way made me reconnect with my fan base. And, and it was also an interesting filter because two things had happened. Three things, actually one, it brought everybody who wanted to be there, there, you know what I mean? Sometimes right. when you play a show or, or play a thing and you're in there and you're playing and you're looking around the room, like half these people could give a fuck to even be here. <laughs> They're just right. here for whatever, you know, it's like the people who were there, We're there and we're 100% present. And that was warming because it was like, oh, we can just have this interaction. Second, because we weren't in a club or in an atmosphere where I had to make you dance or, you know, in an environment where someone's like, hey, man, we need to fucking, you need to hit this benchmark of, you know, people through the door or sell this bottle or whatever the bullshit, you know, agenda is behind them besides the music, which is what we're all there for. It took all that away. And so... It was, everything was flipped. So instead of like, I remember seeing certain DJs go in and start playing like they were still at the club. And I was like, that's cool for people who want that. But I felt like people, it was the opposite. Like people are now sitting on their couches, like chilling, watching. And so you could play music. You could dig into your bag and play some stuff that's really like heady or groovy stuff that you would play only at an opening set or stuff that you would never play at all. And people were like, yo, what is this? Because people were just wanting to connect. And if it gave them a vibe or a feeling, they could finish that stream and close their laptop and be like, yo, I feel like, like I went to church and music has a power to heal. So I was here and like all this music that I was playing to heal myself, I started playing for other people And it allowed, it just opened up this whole other thing. And then the last thing, sorry to be on this tangent, man, but the last thing that was really amazing for me was something that, you know, as a DJ, putting it all together live, very technical, very hands-on. It's like, if you know, if you're doing some incredible fucking shred and you want everyone to see you doing this thing, because it's so like, that's Eddie Van Halen level shred like oh (laughs) that guy knows how you know like you want people to know that I did all this work and you know it's something that you care about and you know that there's very few people who tap into that but those who do you want to show that because you're upping the craft and you're wanting to push that so there was this level for a long time where in the DJ community it became less and less about the how and the what you were doing and more about the spectacle or the pyro or the lights or the overall wow of it where Sweet. people were you know, going to see a Cirque du Soleil level event as opposed to an acoustic performance where you're like just locked in. So yeah. when streaming happened, it was us in front of a camera. And I noticed this when I did a rave an online rave like Pasquale from Insomniac, the guys who throw the biggest festivals in that world, EDC and Nocturnal mm-hmm. Wonderland and on and on, Yeah, right. you know, OG LA rave dudes. When Pasquale hit me up, he's like, Hey man, I want you to do a rave. We're doing a, a thing in, in trying to keep people, you know, sane. And I was like, okay, well, what do you, what's the deal? He's like, well, we're going to do a virtual rave. And they took their office waiting room area and converted it into a studio and they had a set of of cdjs and they would have a dj come in play and then exit out the other door then someone would wipe down the stuff and then the next dj would come in and play and then exit and that's how they were doing these virtual raves and so wow i'll try and make this quick but it's a very important thing to because it mattered to me it was also sort of a big shift and i think it's i'm carrying it into everything i do now but he'd asked me to do this and I was like, well, cool. I'm down to do it. But I, you know, I use turntables. So we got to figure out how to set up my turntable, my gear, because I don't use CDJs. And he's like, okay, we'll figure it out. So I was on the phone with the tech guys. And again, all makeshift, everyone just putting their time in one camera, you know, maybe handheld, whatever, but like, this is not a festival that you would walk into and have 18 stages and it's one, one environment. So, We figured out how to do it. And then they're like, well, the guy was like, listen, I don't, we don't really have hands that could turn this stuff around. So we might have to have you start it. And I was like, oh, so I'm starting like, you know, and the mentality of you work your whole career to not be the opener, but to be the headliner. And so I've gotten to that level of like Coachella level headlining and you know, Lollapalooza and, you know, whatever, Austin city limits, all these benchmarks, you know, big day out Australia, you get to these parts where you're like, you've leveled up. Now I'm opening the fucking thing. I was like, Oh, okay. All right, fine. (laughs) And then two days before I'm talking to somebody and they're like, so you got the memo about doing the old school set. Right. And I was like, wait a second. What now? I'm Now I'm the, fucking old guy doing the old school set opening the thing i'm like (laughs) yo this is not what i signed up for and like you know and keep in mind i've been working on new music and at the time a song was coming out like in a week i was putting a new song out with this a collaboration that i did with this guy ls dream and we did a song called space funk which is really dope everyone should go out and find it ls dream all one word z trip space funk And it's a groovy tune man. it's just funky ass tune, but that was coming out like in a week. And so here I am, like I got new music. I don't want to play old throwback shit. Like I I don't mind doing that, but I said, fuck it. Show must go on. I'll do it. Whatever. I'm handcuffed to my turntables. So I got to do this. I went in and did my set. And afterwards I exited and my phone had blown up. And all of a sudden, my Instagram, I had like 300 messages. I was like, holy shit. Hey. They, had, they had 250 some odd people watching it on one platform. They had another 100,000 people watching on another, another 300,000 watching on another. And I realized that in the pandemic world, in the streaming world, if you go on first, it's like everyone is re- they're bored, ready to do ready. something. So it's like Pump it, at the bit. it yeah. was like having the headline slot. I everything ready. that is up is down. Everything that's right is left. Everything's you know. So here I was in this situation where I was dreading it, and it actually ended <laughs> up benefiting me in a way that was incredible because all of a sudden I had these new fans that were like, "What is this?"
0: <laughs> coupled yeah. with the fact
2: that they were seeing me DJ, and so they were like seeing the craft happen, right. and there wasn't any distractions of. Pyro or whatever it was one screen and they were locked in and so they got to see it happen and so everything that yeah. I was hoping for happened and uh, yes. it was a blessing man in such a major way and I'll tell you one of my favorite comments was in the comments cuz you know people are like chiming in and like are those new cdjs like all these people young people who didn't know what was going on somebody <laughs> said and it was my favorite they said oh he's djing djing and I was like
0: yes
2: yes <laughs> right that's what I was I was like because you know you want to you want people to have a good time and as much as we're sort of nerds about wanting people to see the craft it doesn't fucking matter really to the big scheme of like did you have a good time did you enjoy the music you know whatever like did you walk away feeling refreshed But if you get boiled down to like, did you notice my cuts and my scratches and the blend and the thing? And like, I want you to know that because I I care about that. But it's so hard to do that. It had been so hard to do that pre-pandemic because it became less about that and more about the, you know, the show and all the bells and whistles. And I'm not mad at that, but I was able to go up there and I ended up giving them a thing where I was like... I'm giving you old school with new school flavor. And that wasn't the mantra. And so I was able to play my brand new track. I was able to play some throwback stuff, but take stuff that was old and rinse it out with new flavor. And so it was really sort of like, boom, there you go. Here's the epitome of why I've been doing it for as long as I've been doing it oh, and why they funny. asked me to be here. And I basically onboarded all these new fans and young people who were curious. And I love that. And you know, it was just full blessing in disguise, but I took that away and put that into streaming and moving forward and just realizing like every time I was also kind of burnt going into the pandemic. Like, oh man, I'm just, I don't know. Nothing's exciting me anymore. And I came out of the pandemic, all new faces, all new people that were super excited. It sparked me up to want to do new things. And, and so anyway, so again, I put out another song with my homie Ellis dream called moon legs. That's a new one Mm -hmm. that we put out not that long ago, but there's all, I'm still doing new stuff still doing my DJ stuff, but that moment pandemic was really, it made the why that much more concrete and reinforced and made me reconnect with the young me and realizing that I don't have to do what I thought I had to do to continue my path. I can do exactly what I feel. There is a a fan base out there that supports it. I'm grateful for that. But also if I'm just true to myself the universe provides, man. The universe will put the will connect you to what it is you're looking for. And I'm a firm believer in that. So sorry for the long dude, that that rant. But you uh, talking <laughs> from your heart about
0: that is better than any questions I could ask. Thanks well, for I all that. I appreciate that. That was great, man. And I love what you said yeah. about you know that it brought you back to why you started doing this in the first place because you're doing it here. All of us who play music, whether we're DJs or we play guitar or drums or whatever it might be, or sing, we've played to two people and we've played to thousands of people. You know, right? I just watched that footage on your website of you playing some stadium with LL in front of like I don't know how many people, seventy-eight oh, thousand, yeah, yeah, 70, or yeah, like that.
2: yeah, RFK Stadium in DC. That RFK was... Stadium. So
0: you're what? doing that. And then you're doing a live stream at a virtual rave. And then you've played, you know, to barely anybody like all of us have. That's one
2: thing. I don't mean to interrupt, but that's one thing. You're pointing that out. And it's making me realize that I have to say something. I want to speak on that for anyone who's concerned with the, oh, I've got to hit these benchmarks. You know, if thousands of people aren't seeing me, I'm a failure. Is such bullshit. And it's also, you know, if you just do it, eventually there'll be moments where everyone sees everything. There'll also be moments where nobody sees anything. But if you just continue to do it, it's really, and I've realized this, this is the big takeaway from all of this is it's about the aggregate. It's about all of it together, the career, the everything. You know what I mean? If you were to balance out all the people who saw you, what's the average amount of people in a setting? Well, I've got some fucking – I got some credit. I opened for the Rolling Stones in front of 450 thousand people at one point. Yeah. That's great numbers. But I've also yeah. done some shows where tickets didn't sell too well, man, and I had like you know 80 people there.
0: So you and know that might have been just as fun too. It could have. Sometimes those are even more fun. Sometimes those are
2: even better, man. Where you're like, I got to yeah. really work for this, man. I got to fucking get. It. You know what <laughs> I right. mean? So, but the whole point is getting caught up in the numbers game, my followers, likes who received it you know am i worthy enough did i you know the self-worth the the connection to the dopamine rush of like oh, i gotta like like yeah. all that shit we all get so caught up in the chasing of that and i sure. found that happen would happen a lot with also sometimes people in the team get caught up in that because yeah. numbers matter to them i can't get you booked if you haven't sold x y and z or i can't yeah up you because of this so there's a level of like well yeah that matters And if you're doing great numbers then that's great for your career but if you're not then that's not great for your career but for your creative sometimes just going and doing something because you feel it had i not done that rave virtual rave thing with pasquale with edc and that whole thing i wouldn't have had those people and i was going into it with such a negative energy of like i'm the opener i'm the old guy they, yeah. you know, fuck man, I'm on turntables. Like this is just the fucking worst, you know, <laughs> coming out of like the mentality of, of judging my highest with where I was at that moment. And I think yeah. you have to forget about that shit. Every gig go into it. Like it's your first, put your heart and fucking soul into it. Cause you never know who's watching. You never know what's happening. Yes. You know, that to me is the most sage advice that I could give to anybody Is play every show like it's your first and like it's your last you know what i mean like just that's all that fucking matters is that moment and don't not give your best because you're like oh man no one's gonna see this fuck it man you know don't as a dj don't you know cover your title and like share everything be open be friendly say hi to everybody at the end of the show take as many fucking photos be grateful to be in this position be grateful that you have the opportunity to share and you also have the opportunity to receive cuz it's not just about getting up on stage and giving it's about standing on that stage and receiving because that to me sometimes is the bigger reward you know 99% absolutely. of the time it is you know what i mean so, absolutely man i don't know man i got a real big dose of that coming in and out of the pandemic. Cause once I also got back on stage afterwards, once I was back out on, on the road, I was just like, yo, I am so grateful that I'm able to do this and that people are able to, to give me what I need, which is I need interaction as a performer, you know, performing to an empty room. You know, if there's just fucking one, there's one person there. (laughs) So I need, if there's a million people, that's great too, but doing it for nobody is tough, you know,
0: but for all of the people, I mean, I don't know a better place to leave it than that today, Zach, and I'm so grateful for all your words. I think people are going to be really inspired. But yeah, I mean, we do it because we love it and we need to not forget that we're lucky to do it. If success comes, that's great, but you got to remember that you do it because you love music yeah, and you want to share music with people and give them that same inspiration it gave you. You have to. like, you. It's not even that you want to, you have to.
2: Like, I have to get this out of me right. you know what i mean right. when you're sitting there sometimes you're just hanging out doing whatever and like this melody or this thing or this idea like i gotta get this like it's like it's like vomit i gotta, I gotta fucking get it out of me <laughs> i gotta go somewhere and get this out of me immediately or else i'm gonna be sick it's like <laughs> i think you connect to that let that be your guiding light and your yeah. compass i think people tap into that and to be honest i'll say this as well but for all the fans I've had over the years, I don't mind shedding some of that. If they were there for the wrong reasons or for reasons mm. that weren't genuine, I'd rather have a small, core group of people who really encourage me to do my best yeah. and encourage yeah. me to interact with them and have a dialogue with them. Then I need more numbers to pad it in and then all of a sudden i feel like i'm not connected or i'm you know i'd rather have a small community and i'd rather build that community and have it be what it is and if it taps out at a certain amount fuck it like that's cool too i'm good with that so i feel like that's something to be mindful of is don't get caught up in the snowball get caught up in taking care of your community and giving them what they want and asking them questions and being available to them and vice versa. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's a relationship and you have to be there for that. You know what I mean? Cause it's not, it's not all about you. It's a very much about them.
0: That is, that is that is the bottom line, isn't it? It's unless you're connecting with people, what's the point? That's yeah. why we're here. Well, like, as, as, short, as, man. You got to connect a fan, with people
2: and find your people. As a fan of others, yes. that's what I want. I want to connect. So I think, I think, That's something too that, you know, again, not to go complete, you know, but again, in a time where none of us could hug or touch or see, connection really means everything and you get to really reinforce that. So I'm coming out of this thing, you know, wherever I go with it, just a much more enlightened person and a much better performer and artist, I think. I'd like to think so just because I took some time to reflect and not really have it be about me. And I'm grateful for that. So, any pearls of wisdom that I can share with anybody about this, I'm happy to do so. But I feel like uh, I'm stoked that you hit me up about this because anytime I can pass along this info and hopefully it changes somebody's perspective, this is really what it's about. And I think more and more people are are figuring that out. You know, it's about this real raw thing, and that's you know the art, the music.
0: Yeah, yeah, man. The music is everything. Well, I love you, and I hope to see you real soon in person. But for now, Same, virtual man. fist bump. <laughs> love
2: you back as well, brother. Thank you for having me. Anytime, oh, dude, all time. My
0: pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on, Zach. You rule, bud. And Thank you, brother. We will catch up in real life very soon. Definitely. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Cruess Studio. And danubeproductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate. We edit podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers Scott Power, Alex Deser, and Bill Colton. And last but not least, go check out Soul Picnic. My handpicked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ewick signing off.
1: Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Pajot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.